Paul's second letter to Timothy. If you're visiting with us, we are in a series, 2 Timothy, which followed after our series on 1 Timothy. You can find that on page 995 in the Pew Bible. We're in chapter 2. focus this morning will be on verses 10 to 14. As you keep your Bibles handy, we're going to refer to many other passages this morning. I do want to begin reading in verse 8 to give a little context, but 2 Timothy 2, 10 to 14 is our focus. Children, here are your questions for this morning. First, what are some things Paul suffered as he served the Lord as missionary and preacher? Two, what are the blessings mentioned in verses 11 and 12? Three, if someone denies or rejects Jesus as Lord, how will he, that is Jesus, respond? And four, does God change? Second Timothy 2, beginning in verse 8, this is the word of God. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains, as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithful, faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. There ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the record of your will that you've given to us. And so when we hear your word read, Lord, we are to tune our ears and our hearts to receive from you. And now as we've just heard your word read and moved to the preaching of your word, we pray that you would help us. Help the preacher by sending your spirit in a special way. Lord, help all of us who will hear this morning to receive from you through the ministry of your spirit and the power of your word. We come to you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Paul has just stressed the fact that Jesus is very much alive. It wouldn't make much sense for Paul to be a preacher willing to suffer for the name of Christ if Christ weren't alive. He just stressed the fact that Jesus was alive, which is at the very heart of the gospel that he preached. And he was so devoted to this gospel that he calls it his own. He owns it. This is my gospel, he says. Obviously, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he's so devoted to it that he can say it's his gospel. Such devotion to the gospel has caused Paul great suffering. It's also causing suffering for other of his contemporary Christians as well who are willing to be bold with the gospel, willing to be marked as Christians. Uh, They were suffering under Nero, and that suffering was becoming intensified. 
I don't want to elaborate too much or highlight the vast atrocities of Nero, but I want to read you one, at least one small sampling of his immense cruelty. This is from the historian Tacitus. He writes, besides being put to death, speaking of Christians, besides being put to death, they were made to serve as objects of amusement. They were clad in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others were set on fire to illuminate the night when daylight failed. Nero had thrown open his grounds for the display and was putting on a show in the circus where he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer and drove around in his chariot. It's in that context that Paul is encouraging the saints to persevere in the faith. Suffering will come. Some of them will face death. Paul himself is facing death. And he's encouraging the saints to persevere in the faith no matter what. Whenever I read about persecuted Christians, whenever I look back in the history of persecution, whenever I rethink what that's like, I often think how quickly I'm ready to shrink back. Maybe you experience the same thing. Shrink back from that which is hardly worthy at all to be called anything like persecution. If you remember from last time, Paul was telling the saints that they needed to be prepared. To be prepared to train, to prep for service, and to prep for trials. That's the whole context of what he's writing here. But he's also encouraged because the gospel is still at work despite efforts to stop it. Jesus said that it wouldn't be easy for those who would preach the gospel to preach. It wouldn't be easy to live for him if they hated him. They would certainly hate them as well. So they need to be encouraged. Great need to endure. To endure in the faith not only for the sake of their own souls, but also for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. Paul lets the reader know that it's so critical and so much part of who he was, this preaching of the gospel, that he was willing to endure everything for it. That word willing is something that we all need to embrace wherever we are in our Christian walk. Willingness to serve Christ no matter what. It's a disposition that we all ought to have. That mentality that Jesus had, that Paul had, your will be done. What was it that Paul endured? He gives a couple of lists. One I want you to look at is in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Pick up in verse 24. Paul is willing to endure. He Paul could have been very popular. He could have been very successful in the ways of the world. He was a brilliant man. And he had great status among his peers in his day. That was until he was stopped in his tracks and became a Christian. And then everything changed. Remember that Paul's first trials didn't come from the Romans. It came from his own people. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? And after all that excitement in Paul's missionary life and all that he went through, now he's in a prison cell, bound in chains and facing death. But he sees it as worth it. What was so worth it for him? He had a goal. I dare say that Paul was purpose-driven. I maybe better would say that Paul was gospel-driven. Paul's first concern, obviously, was that he was glorifying his God and what he was doing. But then he was very concerned, driven by his call to get the gospel out to the elect. You might say that Paul's goal was the same as Jesus's. Jesus was actually redemptive in his work. But Jesus' goal, if you could summarize it, was to save sinners. Paul's goal is the same, to get the gospel out to sinners who need to hear about the saving power of Jesus Christ. His gospel was that. His gospel was about the power of Christ. And behind the words of the gospel is the true, converting, life-saving power of the merits of Jesus Christ who died to save sinners. That was Paul's goal, to get the gospel out to sinners. Some might stumble on this fact that Paul has this anxiety, if you will, to get the gospel out there, but he's talking about the elect. I would suggest don't get hung up on that idea of election, rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. Take great comfort in it, if you're a Christian. God is sovereign in salvation. No one else can save us. Certainly we couldn't save ourselves, and it should be a great comfort to all who believe that God has marked his people from before time to be his own. It's a great comfort to believers. It's a great comfort to people who weren't believers and become believers that they can say, I'm chosen by God. And it's something that should humble everyone who is in Christ. A surprise to unbelievers who come to know Christ. Paul celebrates this. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul just goes into this wonderful, wonderful declaration, this wonderful praise of God and his work from eternity, his design to save sinners like us. Blessed be the, this is verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were once the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's a lot of celebration there. And Paul's not afraid to connect the fact that God's sovereign in salvation and choosing and election and predestinating and yet at the same time the truth had to go forth so that people would believe. No conflict there. And, and, and we see, and we can't deny, and nobody should try to wiggle out biblical terms like election and chosen and predestination. But elect as we may be. First of all, it's profoundly humbling. But elect as we may be, if you're saved, in other words, Someone told you the gospel. And you believed. Your soul was saved. And that's part of God's wisdom and his design that people tell people the gospel and that through the power of the word and the work of the Holy Spirit, people consciously receive Christ in faith as the Holy Spirit opens their eyes, changes their life. God's predestination and the gospel preaching are never in conflict. Paul didn't see any conflict at all. Think of preachers like George Whitfield, one of the greatest evangelists ever, thoroughgoing in his understanding of the sovereignty of God and salvation, election, chosen, and all that stuff, was not afraid to preach the gospel, the free offer of the gospel to anyone who would hear without discretion. That's what Paul did. Paul would preach in the public square to all kinds of people, Pharisees and, and Gentiles and temple prostitutes and all kinds of people, and he didn't look out and didn't try to figure out who might be among the elect, who might be the chosen. He simply preached Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead and alive as Savior and Lord. No conflict and here's an amazing thing. We're privileged to be a part of that. To be a part of that spreading of that passing on of the gospel. Not as a negative burden. Not as something that we feel guilty about if we're not sharing the gospel. I think we need to flip our minds a little bit and our hearts a little bit and see what a privilege and blessing it is to be able to tell people about Jesus. One of our members puts it this way, what incredible love and condescension that 
that Christ not only saves us and brings us into fellowship with our Lord, but also calls us to share in his labors. He makes us his hands and feet, his representatives to others that he calls. That's what drove Paul. That nails it. What a privilege. Privilege to be a part of it. Well, the gospel has an effect. When the gospel goes out, people get saved. I feel like sometimes we forget that people still get saved. People get saved. People still get saved. Reflecting on that whole Jesus movement that I was swept into the kingdom with, I recently listened to a bunch of testimonies from people who were brought into the kingdom of God and the Jesus movement in our country. And they were people who had endured and they were people who were testifying later in their life and reflecting back on their coming to Christ. And it was always because, what? Someone told them the gospel. And the Holy Spirit worked in their lives. And I think sometimes we forget that that still happens, maybe not as dramatically as we saw it in our own country and not as dramatically as we've seen it in revivals, but God is still saving souls. What a horrible thing is if it was all over. In fact, if it was all over, if all the elect were gathered in, it would be all over. People come to know Christ. They come through the preaching of the gospel. Paul makes that very point when he's pressing for missionary support. How will they hear unless they have a preacher. How will they hear? How will they believe unless they hear the gospel? I'm paraphrasing there. But Paul's passion and Paul's understanding of his calling and Paul's understanding of the power of the gospel puts in perspective his own suffering. It's worth it for him. God is faithful to save. Our God is faithful and he does so through the preaching of his gospel. Paul could even say, as he writes to the Philippians, that even his imprisonment has served to spread the gospel. When Paul talks about the spread of the gospel, he's not talking about the spread of some intellectual political movement, some philosophy. He's talking about the gospel that saves sinners. Well, what Paul faced and what the Christians faced then and what many Christians face today requires perseverance. They're under great duress. They need the strength of the Lord, and and Timothy has to lock into that himself, and so do all Christians. Because Christians should expect some form of suffering, some range of suffering if they belong to Christ. It should be no surprise. Jesus said so. We need to be prepared. We need to be resolved. And I'm afraid that sometimes in our safe context, it's easy to become soft and complacent. Complacent about our own souls. Complacent about others also. We see the gospel truth has to be preserved and it has to go out. Paul then goes into this this tension or this contrast between faith and perseverance and forsaking Christ and apostasy. 
And Timothy and the leaders needed to understand that they were realities. And the first set is tremendous blessing. The believers are tremendously blessed because when we die in Christ, we live. Die in Christ, we live. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. True faith has to do with dying to self, putting to death the old man, the new man coming to life. In fact, it's not fair to tell people that they can come to know the Savior Jesus without dying. Jesus himself said, you have to take up your cross to follow me. But there is that death to self, to come alive in Christ. Paul elaborates on that quite a bit in Romans 6, and for the sake of time, I won't turn there. But, but through dying comes true life. It's so intertwined in Romans 6. But there's a necessity of death. Matthew Henry puts it this way, many a man hugs himself to death. Picture that imagery. Many a man hugs himself to death and loses his life by over-loving it. Here's some passages. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Colossians 3.1-3, If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. And then, if that's not enough to have life in Christ, and to have life now, and to have life in eternity, if we endure, we will also reign with him. What a blessed responsibility to be a part of the royal family, reigning with Christ to our shock. Certainly, that's limited in this life. But never forget the fact that we will reign with Christ. We will even judge, be a part of judging men and angels. Can't turn to those passages, but Revelation 3.21, Revelation 5, 9 to 10. Look at them. First Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. Hard for us to imagine that. But with perseverance comes this tremendous, gracious responsibility of reigning in his kingdom. I don't know what that looks like in this life. But I know it's a lot better in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, everything sounds good so far. I want to be a part of this. I want to be alive in Christ. I want to reign with Christ. 
You want to persevere in Christ. Amen. No one would deny that. But then there's this sudden turn to a sad reality that there are those who deny Christ. And the pain behind denial of Christ is so intense that it causes us, most of us, to want to deny the condition of our loved ones who are outside of Christ. Because we know the implications. But denying the condition of a soul without Christ, especially someone who was raised in the covenant, who once professed Christ and now denies Christ by their lives or by their words, we, we can't deny what Jesus says. Denial does no good. Prayer does. Don't stop praying for those folks that you love that are outside of Christ. But it's Jesus himself who said, Matthew 10, 32 and 33, if you need to know the reference. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Can you think of anything more sobering? Can you think of any worse words to hear from the Savior than I do not know you? And remember that many who will stand before the judgment will say, will call him Lord, Lord, and he'll say, call me Lord, Lord. You don't do my will. I don't know you. Please understand, this is not talking about momentary failure in word and in deed. God is not volatile like that. If he saved us, he's going to keep us. He'll discipline his children. If it were every time that we functionally denied Christ by our words or by our actions, we would all be doomed. Even in some heavy-duty situations, can you imagine being under the pressure of Nero and the temptation to hide your faith and deny Christ? and to cave into the demands that were pressured on people that were being persecuted, sometimes their own family members put to death before their very eyes, forced upon the threat of a sword to call Caesar Lord as opposed to Christ. Can you imagine that pressure? Certainly some true Christians caved. There was a big controversy in the early church on whether those who had lapsed, they called him, could be brought back into the membership of the church. That's back when church membership really meant something significant. Certainly, if someone repents and grieves over their functional denying of Christ, over some temptation or some moment of weakness, true repentance will bring them back into favor with God. They've never lost ultimate favor with him, but they'll be restored. Certainly, Peter experienced that wonderful restoration. This is talking about apostasy. Deny Christ, you'll be denied. And that's not unfair on God's part. It's people getting what they asked for. 
Why would we think it would be any different? If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. It's hard to know exactly the parallel going on. There are the first two, the blessings of believers, and the second two, the curse of unbelief. Or is there something here where it's saying, look, even if we are faithless, God remains faithful to the individual who's faithless? I don't think so. God doesn't change. God is faithful, but he's faithful in saving, but he's also faithful in judgment. And so the point is that God doesn't change. But there are those who believe in Christ and those who deny Christ. And he's going to be faithful, faithful in doing what he's declared. Those who profess Christ and live for him will live with him. Those who deny him will be a sent away from him. God is gracious, but he won't be mocked. And far too many think that they can get through life, slide by, denying Christ, maybe not openly, maybe not verbally, but with their lives and with their hearts, with their lifestyles, thinking they can slide by and that God will just bless them. Not so. Not so. Well, either way, God does not change. God does not change. Finally, and I think one of the big points here for Timothy is to stay on topic. Stay on topic. It may be costly, but it's worth it because the gospel saves. Stick with the truth of the gospel. Number one, God does not change. He's entirely faithful. He's consistent. His promise to save through the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, his warning of judgment to those who don't believe. But keep the gospel central. That's why I went into verse 14, and I'll close with this. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. The word that Paul uses there for ruin is catastrophe. False teaching, false gospel, the people that follow the false gospel face a catastrophe of their souls unless God intervenes through the power of the Spirit and the true gospel. And so God, again, is faithful to save and to keep us, to save those who tru- truly believe, and he's faithful to warn those who deny him what's in store. Well, may we be found faithful and endure and persevere and delight in Christ, living our lives for him. May God grant us all the grace as a church to be faithful and as individuals to be faithful to our faithful God by his grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your great mercy and your kindness towards us, so undeserving, so beyond our comprehension, to think that you have marked us from before time in Christ, to be your own. And then in your gracious timing, in your ways, and each person in Christ in this room can testify to a different means through which we heard the gospel, but all who are in Christ can testify 
that we've heard the gospel and we've believed and you've saved our souls and we rejoice in that. May we, in response to that, live grateful lives before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's Supper. And this supper is for those who have trusted.